Welcome to the Sound on Sound podcast. Hello and welcome to the July edition of the Sound on Sound podcast, which goes with the August issue of the magazine. I'm Editor-in-Chief Paul White, and here with me in the studio is Hugh Robjohns, just back from holiday in some exotic part of East Anglia. Hello. So, Hugh, I guess if I ask you what you've been doing over the last few weeks, the answer is mainly going to be working on your all-over tan. Yeah, something like that. I'd offer to show you the white bits, but but it's all white, really, because we were holidaying in Britain and there isn't any sun. But, yeah, I had a really nice holiday that was completely devoid of almost anything to do with audio, except I did get told off when we went to look at some historic old houses and I found myself evaluating the sound-isolating properties of the double doors they had between the Lord's Quarters and the Servants' Quarters, which was quite interesting. But apart from that, it was a very sound-free holiday. So did you do any review stuff before you went that we should know about? Oh, I did shed loads of it, and it was all a bit of a rush towards the end, but it's so long ago now I can't remember any of it. And I've got some microphones waiting for me now, though. I've got some Josephson and some Mike W microphones to look at. So uh, they're my next immediate project. What about you? What are you up to? Well, I survived yet another year helping to organise the music and the sound for Mulvern's Westfest. And I've also had some fun in the studio trying out Roland's new GR55 guitar synth. I've been a sucker for guitar synths ever since I bought the GR500 back in 1977 for what was about eight months' salary, I think. And this new one does so much more for around a third of the price that I paid back then. It's got faster and more accurate pitch tracking than any of the previous models. It comes with a huge library of sounds. And for the first time, the unit also includes guitar and amp modelling taken from Roland's VG range of processors. So if you're like me and you can't make any sense of a musical keyboard, you can use it to access all your favourite synth sounds from a guitar, where you can simply change key just by moving your hand an inch to the left. That's what I call a proper instrument. I've also been taking a look at the native instruments, Abbey Road 80s drums, and they really do conjure up the sound of that era with the huge gated room ambience, the octoban tune toms and all that kind of stuff. That one's certainly worth checking out. If you want to recreate the sound of the 80s, just please promise me you won't recreate the hair to go with it. And finally, I spent last weekend at an industry event organised by Digital Village where I did a couple of seminars on the theme of microphones and vocal recording. That went down pretty smoothly, despite the volunteer vocalist initially going to the wrong branch of DV and finally arriving after I'd started my talk. The August issue of Sound on Sound contains a wealth of useful information and in-depth reviews, as always. Classic Tracks this month looks at Little Fluffy Clouds by The Orb, while Phil Eck tells the story of recording Fleet Fox's second album, which took the band to five different studios. Studio SOS this month sorts out problems of a reader who produces drum and bass music while Mix Rescue ventures into the murky world of Morris dancing. Excellent. I like Morris dancing. No, I don't really. (laughs) Tell me here, why do Morris dancers wear bells? I don't know, Paul. Why do Morris dancers wear bells? Apparently it's so they can irritate the blind as well. Ha ha ha. That was actually told to me by Chris Morris from Fairport Convention, who is a Morris dancer, so I don't feel too bad about that one. (laughs) Fair enough. (laughs) On the reviews front, Roland's new Jupiter 80 gets the full sound-on-sound treatment, while Dave Lockwood finds that the U-Rock MIDI guitar is actually very useful in the studio, not just for playing games. Hugh managed to check out the Eventide Eclipse version 4 effects processor, while I took the HK Elements compact PA system on the road to see how it held up. We also look at the Allen & Heath GSR24 analogue mixer and door controller, monitors from JBL and Tannoy, and the Mackie Onyx Blackbird audio interface. And that's just a start, with more than 25 reviews in all. And here's Sam Ingalls to tell you a little bit more about one of the prime features in this issue. This month, I've been mostly looking at a very interesting suite of plugins from Flux Developments. Ercam Tools is based on technologies developed at the Ercam Research Institute in Paris. 
Now, I'm not sure how well this effect will survive the horrible low bitrate crunching that our podcast has to go through to reach you, but if it does, you should be able to hear there's something a bit unusual about the reverb surrounding my voice. And that's because I'm using a plugin called SPAT, which is no ordinary reverb. Instead, it's designed to mimic a whole host of acoustical phenomena that help our ears locate a source within an acoustic space. The idea being you can take a source recorded in a fairly dead environment like this one and place it anywhere you like within a large hall or room. So I could be coming from the back of the hall or right next to the listener's ear. I could even turn myself around virtually. There's almost no limit to what you can do with SPAT. It's an incredibly clever plugin, and I've had a huge amount of fun playing with it. The other key plugin within the ERCAM Tools bundle is called Trax Transformer. Trax Transformer has a lot of different functions, but to my mind, it's most interesting as a vocal processor. You tell Trax Transformer what sort of vocalist it's dealing with, and you can then transmute the voice using any number of different weird and wonderful parameters. In theory, the list of vocal transformations that's possible with Trax Transformer is endless. I could make myself sound like a woman. I could emphasise my own rugged masculinity. I could make myself sound small and vulnerable. I could make myself sound like a cartoon science fiction baddie. But I still can't sing. TC Helicon have unveiled the Voice Live 2 Extreme Edition, which adds expanded memory, enhanced preamps, and extra presets. Voice Live 2 Extreme Edition also offers auto adaptive compression and equalization, reverbs, delays, modulation effects, harmony processing, doubling, and more besides. All of these effects can be combined, tweaked and stored as personal presets for anything from smooth and produced sound to a dirty in your face outrage. Apparently, Extreme Edition will be a limited run and in the US, Musician's Friend is the exclusive dealer for the product. In the rest of the world, Voice Live 2 Extreme Edition will be available through regular TC Helicon dealers. Line 6's MIDI Mobilizer 2 is their latest portable MIDI interface for the Apple iPhone and iPad. Unlike the original MIDI Mobilizer, which is still available for use with older iOS devices, MIDI Mobilizer 2 is compatible with Core MIDI, the new standard for iOS music apps. MIDI Mobilizer 2, plus the MIDI Memo Recorder software, an app created by Line 6 that's free on the App Store, allows users to record, playback and backup any MIDI data. MIDI recordings can also be opened in any digital audio recording software that supports a standard MIDI file format. The thing is compatible with iPod Touch, 3rd and 4th generation, iPhone 3Gs, iPhone 4, iPad and iPad 2. The suggested retail price in the UK is £54.99 and further details from uk.line6.com slash midimobilizer with a Z. And now a plug for our Music Technology Basics and Beyond SOS Smart Guide. While this bookazine is designed to get newcomers to recording up to speed, it also includes some useful tips on recording and production that even more advanced users will find useful. From cable and connector types to the underlying principles of EQ, compression and mixers, this 170-page Basics and Beyond book covers all of the essential areas and explains what all of that jargon really means. Readers who buy Basics and Beyond are also entitled to download a selection of top-quality instructional videos from Berkeley Music Online, making the £5.99 price tag something of a bargain. The US price is $9.99, and if you missed it in the stores, you can buy your copy from the soundonsound.com website. 
In the UK, Music Track are now offering Kinman guitar pickups, and these Australian designed and built pickups are widely held to be the most authentic sounding, noiseless replacements for traditional single coil pickups that are available. Kinman has been building custom pickups since 1965, and the range includes Stratocaster, Telecaster, and P90 single coil replacement pickups. These are available individually or in carefully configured sets. Its zero hum models have been played by the likes of David Gilmore, Prince, Gary Moore, Jackson Brown and Hank Marvin. Oh, and me. So for more information, contact musictrack.co.uk. Q&A time again. This reader asked, given that most door software uses floating point arithmetic to give it a vast amount of headroom, does it matter if signals appear to exceed clipping within the door mixer, providing, of course, that they're recorded without clipping in the first place? Well, Matt answered this one in the mag, so let's see what he's got to say. Over to you, Matt. Thank you, Paul. The first thing to say is that red does not necessarily mean that things have clipped. You can set the thresholds for your meters inside Cubase, just as you can in most doors. You can even pick the colour if you want. Also, when you're working in a 32-bit or 64-bit floating-point system, you have masses of headroom for calculations. So even though, say, your kick or your snare drum might appear to be clipping on the channel, as long as everything's brought back down again before you mix down, you should be okay. The problem is that that's only the theory, and chewing this over with colleagues here, including yourself and Dave Lockwood, it seems that not every door handles hot signals during the summing process in the same way. So while it's probably safe to use the channel gain control on a bus or on the master channel just to bring things down a few dB just before you start running the signal through any bus processors, it's probably not such a great idea to run hugely hot signals into the bus, nor is there any need to, as you can restore loudness later on if that's important, and you'll probably achieve a better result if you work that way too. If you find yourself attenuating by 10 or 20 dB or something like that, then it's a much better plan to revisit the fader and automation levels, and that's actually pretty easy to do in Cubase. With plugins, it's much the same. Some really sound bad if you push them too hard. Sonox and Waves plugins, for example, tend to suffer like that in my experience. And that's just a couple of examples. They're far from being alone in that. But then there's no reason you should be pushing them that hard. What it all boils down to for me is that if you're tracking at 24-bit, you can get a good clean signal with a high wanted signal-to-noise ratio. And then you can afford to mix quiet and your kick or your snare needn't peak higher than, say, minus 6 or minus 10 dB. What you can then do is restore any loudness that you want during any mastering or finalising processes. And in the meantime, you should have a volume control on a mixer, monitor controller, amp or speakers, and you just use that if it's too quiet. Thanks, Matt. I've found pretty much the same thing in Logic, so as long as you keep some headroom in there and don't push things too hard, the sound definitely does sound better, so I agree with you on that one. Just make sure your meters are not banging against the end stops and everything should be happy. This is one for Hugh. This reader asks, where would I use the various patterns on a multi-pattern mic? Why don't I just leave it set to cardioid all the time? Well, you could. A lot of people do. But it makes it a bit pointless to buy a multi-pattern mic if you're going to do that. The reason we have different patterns on the microphone is so that you can capture sounds from different directions. It's kind of self-evident, really. Why would you want to? Well, because you might want to capture the sound of the instrument in the room, or you might want to try and exclude the sound of the room from the sound of the instrument or just control the amount of sound you pick up from different directions. So it's really all about what you're trying to record and where you're trying to record it and the kind of sound balance you're trying to get in the process. So where would you use a figure of eight pattern, for example, other than for a speciality stereo recording techniques? Well, the thing with all these patterns is really you need to think about 
what it's trying to reject rather than what you're actually picking up. A bi-directional microphone, it's going to reject sounds from above and below and from the sides. So if you've got a particular noise source at the sides that you don't want to hear, then that's a very good microphone to pick. A very simple example is the classic situation where you're trying to record a singer playing a guitar. Because the problem there is that if you point a microphone, let's say a cardioid microphone, at the guitar, the voice is coming down onto the side of that microphone, and cardioid microphones are actually very sensitive at the side. They're only about 3 dB quieter at the side than they are at the front. So you're going to get a lot of crosstalk between the voice onto the guitar mic, and if you've got another cardioid mic looking at the voice, you're going to get a lot of crosstalk of the guitar into the voice. If you use a figure of eight microphone, it's very, very insensitive to sound from the side. So if you angle it carefully, you can get lots of close pickup from the guitar with almost complete isolation of the vocalist because the vocal sound is coming in on the side axis of the mic. So that's one example. Another thing with figure of eight microphones, you can use the front and the back to capture two sources simultaneously. And by altering the position of the mic between those two sources, you can favor one or the other and control the balance between them in that way while still excluding an awful lot of the room sound. I think it's also true to say that a figure of eight mic although the level falls off the further you go off axis, it doesn't get the same coloration that you would get on a cardioid mic. That's true, actually. The tonal balance, if you like, the frequency spectrum, stays a lot more consistent as you go off axis on the mic. The sound doesn't get quite so coloured as it would with, say, a cardioid microphone. And, of course, that's the other reason for using an Omni. It might pick up more spill than a cardioid, but the spill's going to be accurate, whereas anything coming in the side of a cardioid mic usually ends up sounding quite boxy. That's true, and when you're combining, if you have a you know, a band playing in a room so there's lots of sources all going at the same time, you can never exclude spill from the microphones completely. It's, it's just not, not practical. Uh, so choosing a microphone that captures that spill in a very tonally similar way to the direct sound actually makes it mix together a lot easier. If you're using a lot of cardioid microphones, you really do have to position them very carefully to get maximum isolation because that spill starts to work negatively against you. And of course the Omni doesn't suffer from... Uh proximity effect if suffer is the right word that's true and it's also very good at rejecting vibrations that come through the microphone stand and so on as well so you don't get so much lf rubbish going on at the bottom okay well that seems like a pretty comprehensive answer there hugh the next chap says i've got an audio interface that has a direct monitoring control on the front this is a good idea of course because it reduces latency or it even gets rid of latency however when i use this uh, the vocal sound i hear in my phones is too dry how do i add reverb to this without buying extra hardware I can answer this one for you, I think. Um, normally, when you're recording and using one of these direct monitor controls, you have to turn down the fader in your door to stop you hearing both the direct sound and the slightly delayed sound that's gone through the computer. However, if you turn that fader down and set up a pre-fade aux send on the same channel, you can send that to a reverb plugin and mix that in with what you're hearing back on the door side of the mix. So what you actually hear over your headphones is a mixture of the door signal, which includes some vocal reverb, and the dry vocal itself, and that should make you feel very comfortable without the delay. That signal that's feeding the reverb is delayed by going through the computer, but it doesn't matter because it's a reverb signal, and effectively all, all the latency is doing is giving you a kind of pre-delay on the reverb. Well, that's right. As long as the dry signal isn't delayed, you feel quite comfortable. Yeah, because, absolutely. As, as you say, uh, reverb quite often includes up to 100 milliseconds of pre-delay anyway, so another two or three of latency is going to make no difference. Yeah, that's it. And finally, this reader asks, and quite justifiably, why do engineers insist on choosing equipment that introduces distortion to give sound some kind of coloration? Surely, if you're after a natural sound, you need the cleanest possible signal path. Well, yeah, there is that argument, and that's that's an approach that I generally take with the kind of work I do. If you're recording classical music, you know, orchestras, uh, choral ensembles, whatever, then generally you are trying to capture a very accurate, faithful sound. 
But equally, if you're trying to create a musical experience, a lot of rock and pop music relies on distortion as an inherent part of the sound. Guitarists, for example, use distortion as an inherent part of the sound of their guitar. If we all played clean guitars all the time, it would be a very dull and boring kind of musical existence. So uh, sometimes you need to choose equipment that adds a particularly beneficial kind of distortion because that's part of the expected sound or part of the sound character that you're trying to create. So do you think part of this is due to the way that old records were produced uh, using the gear of the time which added distortion and we got used to the sound of those records and now we want to kind of recreate that because we perceive that in some ways being the right sound for a record? Yeah, I think that's probably true. I think things happened by accident in years gone by that became an integral part of the music that we're used to and, and so we now expect that as part of its character. Thank you. Sound advice. Okay, for the tech talk section this time, we're going to discuss the DIY vocal booth, which if you've read SOS regularly, you'll see we often use a duvet behind the vocalist and something like an SE reflection filter or one of its many counterparts behind the mic. But no one's really explained in great detail why you actually need something behind a cardioid mic, because surely cardioid mics are deaf at the back. So what gives? The important point here is, and I mentioned it just before in in the Q&A section, is that a cardioid microphone, uh, people assume it rejects sound from the back. Well, yes, it does, but actually it only rejects sound significantly over a pretty narrow area at the back. If you look at the on-axis sound level at the front, and then you move around to the side of the microphone, so let's say you come around 90 degrees to the side of the mic, it will only be about 3 dB quieter than you were at the front. So really, a cardioid microphone picks up sound over virtually a hemisphere across the front axis of the thing. So you've got to be very careful about where sound is coming from and how it gets to that microphone. If you have stood up singing in your studio and the microphone's pointing at you, then yes, okay, it hears the sound coming directly from your mouth and your nose, but it also hears sound that's bouncing off the walls behind you and coming in over your shoulder and from the walls at the side of the room and coming in towards the side of the mic and from the ceiling on the floor coming in at the top and bottom of the mic. So you need to take some action to try and control those reflected sounds. And of course, the fact that the cardioid has got a rather poor frequency response at the side means that all those already boxy room reflections coming in from the side end up sounding more boxy. Yeah, that's right. A lot of the top end is missing. Some of the bottom end may be exaggerated. So you get quite a coloured kind of sound coming in from the sides. And that, as you say, makes the sound even more obviously not right. So the uh, the duvet part of the equation, of course, is to stop sound bouncing off the hard surface behind you and over your shoulder and back into the front of the mic. Now, because it's coming into the front of the mic, it probably isn't going to be so coloured, but it's still a reflection we don't want. Yeah, and of course it's very strong, because the front of the mic is the most sensitive area of the microphone. Any thick polyester duvet will do the job nicely, but what you have to appreciate is that, although this will give you the right acoustics for recording, even in an otherwise quite bad room, it won't give you the sound isolation that you get with the true vocal booth, so if there are lorries going past, or noises from your computer, or other musicians playing at the same time, it's not going to have much impact on those. Yeah, that's true. But effectively, we're trying to make a silk purse out of a sow's ear here, aren't we, as the old saying goes. If you're going to record in your bedroom or your living room or whatever, then inevitably there are lots of limitations into the ultimate quality you can achieve. But controlling the worst of these, which is the room sound itself, actually makes probably 80% of the difference in the quality of your recording. And it's just going on beyond that 80% to try and get to a 100% perfect recording that gets increasingly expensive and eventually you need to have a a purpose-designed booth or a purpose-designed studio to get it ultimately perfect. But usually 80% is pretty much as good as it needs to be, particularly in the context of a mix where everything else is going on all the time anyway. So adding a duvet behind you and to the sides will make such a vast improvement in the quality of your recording that most people are happy with that. And of course, it's not just for vocals. You could also record instruments in the same environment. 
Yeah, absolutely. The other thing to think about is, I mean, the idea of the duvet is to try and stop the sound that the instrument or your voice project into the room from bouncing around the room and coming back into the front of the mic. That, that's the idea, and it works extraordinarily well, and it's very simple and cheap to do. But the other way of dealing with this, or the way that to then take it the next step on, is to try and control how much of that sound gets out into the room in the first place. And that's where something like a reflection filter or one of those assemblies that you put up behind the microphone and to the sides of the microphone, that's where they come in. That's true, although I found that the amount of um, sound reduction that they provide for sound actually getting out into the room is quite small. So if it's a really resonant room, you might be better hanging another duvet up in front of the reflection filter so you've got one behind you, one in front, and a reflection filter. That should give you... um, pretty good acoustics yeah that's right i mean the more dampening you can put into the room the better it's going to be but you don't want to go too far because eventually you end up singing inside a padded cell and while that passes the time it's not a particularly pleasant experience if you're trying to record some music that's true enough you just need to take the obvious wetness out of the room and leave something comfortable yeah in my experience certainly when we've done a lot of these studio sos things a lot of people think that building a vocal booth is the way to solve their problems because you see professional studios often have these vocal booths but the thing people don't appreciate is that if you build a booth in a typical domestic situation it ends up being about the size of a telephone box because that's about as practically as big as you can make it and if you build a room like that it ends up inevitably sounding really boxy and in our experience actually you know knocking down that booth and just hanging a few duvets gives you a much better sound quality it's much more natural sounding it doesn't sound boxy anymore it's much more even uh, and it's actually a much more effective way and cost-effective way of working that's fine providing you don't actually need the isolation but where you do need it then i think the answer is just to build the booth a little larger and to use four or six inches of absorbent material where you need it rather than sticking very thin foam on and expecting it to work miracles yeah that's that's a good point if you just put foam on it only absorbs the very high mid-range and the high end and all the low end stuff still rattles around that's what gives you that kind of boxy character I've also found that leaving some reflective surface in there is essential to stop the top end from drying up totally. Yeah, in some cases we've even had to put reflective material back in, haven't we? We've used uh, CDs and strips of wood and things like that on the surface of the foam just to try and put a bit more high-end bounce back into the room to to try and balance out that, uh, that reverb time. That's true. In fact, the the balance is the critical aspect here, isn't it? What you don't want is a reverb time that's radically different at different frequencies. Yes. uh, um, Soaking up low-end energy is very difficult. You need a lot of foam. It has to be quite deep if you're going to use foam, or you need a lot of rock, which again actually has to be quite deep. And of course, that makes it very um, invasive of the space of your booth. And that's why it's very difficult to make a small booth sound good. It needs to be a big booth. And if you're getting into domestic situations, a big booth ends up being half your bedroom. Uh, It's not very practical. So... You know, doing something to try and exclude outside noise like fitting double glazing or even triple glazing or a, an extra panel inside the existing double glazing to reduce external noise and fitting a much heavier door is probably a better bet with some duvets in the room than trying to build a, a proper isolation booth. And cutting the plug off your mum's vacuum cleaner, that kind of thing. That's all we have time for this month, but remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer during our podcast, please email them to podcast at soundonsound.com. So now, it's time to fold up the duvets, clear up the empty hobnob packets, and dust off the studio until next month. So it's goodbye from me, Paul White, and it's goodbye from Hugh. Bye, thanks for listening.